This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal. I'm joined today by Isabel Hardman and Fraser Nelson. We've reached the end of a tumultuous week in British politics. MPs now in their constituency on this Friday morning. But I think everyone's really picking over what just happened this week with the Speaker forced twice to apologise for his decision uh, on the Wednesday votes on the Gaza ceasefire. Fraser, what do you make of it all? I think this has been quite a historic week for Parliament. Actually, because we've had, um, first of all, a huge debate over the correct proceedings of an opposition day debate. And this would be normally, this only happens about three or four times a year where the smaller opposition party gets to do its own debate. Normally, absolutely nobody cares. Nobody cares what anybody says. Nobody cares what anybody votes. But this time it's become thrust right into the centre of the British political debate. And that debate has been about the probity, about the constitutions, about the standing orders of the House of Commons. Um, Now, we've had the, I think the scenes which we saw on Wednesday were absolutely extraordinary. A speaker, a speaker being heckled, being jeered. You know, he's supposed to be the figure of complete authority in the House of Commons. So not since the John Burko days have you really seen um, a speaker up against it so much. And at the centre of this was basically whether the rules of Parliament should be altered, even in a small way, to protect the safety of MPs. It took a while to be clear that that's what we were talking about. We had um, Charles Walker was making a, a speech about this, and others were basically saying that they feared being seen to vote against the ceasefire in Gaza because of the intimidation against them had reached such levels. Now, since the murder of David Amos, you've, they've had very good cause to be concerned about being the target of jihadist attacks. We've seen Mike Freer saying he won't stand again as a, a Tory MP in London because his um, constituency office was set ablaze and he was targeted by um, Islamic extremists. So the, the backdrop of all of this comes a very important question for our democracy. Do you allow this intimidation in any small way to change the way you proceed? Now, the funny thing about our system is people are forever voting against motions. So the oppositions will typically have a, a day where they propose a, a bill in favour of motherhood and apple pie. So the cons- conservatives will vote against motherhood and apple pie and they could be teased, oh, you Tories are so evil, you don't like this. But when it comes to this week, you had the SNP proposing a ceasefire in Gaza, but in a way which basically condemned Israel's whole military campaign and made it very difficult to argue that Israel had any real uh, authority or ability to protect itself or, or to respond to Hamas. Now, of course, Labour couldn't vote for that, but nor did Labour MPs want to be seen to be voting against a ceasefire. So this was a deliberate trap which the SNP set for Labour. It was it was Labour, not really the Tories that were in the SNP sites. So that's why Lindsay Hall thought he'd break with convention, and rather than have a yes or no debate, he would allow each party to have its own... Um, or an amendment. His intention was to make it less uh, likely for MPs to be misconstrued and to respond to the concerns he had, not just from Keir Starmer, but from lots of MPs who were turning up to the Speaker's office saying, look, I really fear for my safety here. You've got to allow Labour to have a vote here so I can vote and be against the ceasefire in my own way, rather than allow myself to be portrayed as being anti-ceasefire. Now, when he agreed over that, responding to the heartfelt pleas of MPs, as by the way, well, he might, 
then he encountered the far bigger problem he'd committed, which was that he'd bent parliamentary rules basically in response to intimidation by um, thugs and extremists. That led to a big constitutional question and led to a realisation that there must be a better way to respond to these threats than the ones which he sort of in a panic administered. Um, Isabel, I'm fascinated by the idea that there might be a bit of a divergence in terms of the levels of threats, maybe, that MPs on different sides of the House are are facing right now. Um, Stephen Bush has written about this today, talking about the idea, perhaps, that in terms of perhaps it could be those Labour MPs in uh, urban areas who are getting more pressure over this and might face greater threats on this. Do you think perhaps there is a sort of misunderstanding, perhaps, between the two sides in terms of the threat level they face? Uh, coming, of course, after the Brexit years, when there was a lot of pressure on MPs to vote a certain way, not extend the Brexit extension, for instance, uh, do you think this is more about a Labour issue or Tory issue or an, an issue on all sides of the House, really? I think it is an issue on all sides of the House. So um, I wrote a column last week for the iPaper just about MP safety following Tobias Elwood's house being targeted. And, and that was quite weird because he has not been the most outspoken on Israel. Indeed, he'd, uh, I think, described Netanyahu as, as reckless uh, recently, but had this really quite frightening non-violent but frightening intimidating loud noisy mob outside of his house and I think anyone seeing those pictures seeing those videos would have thought I would not want to take my children through that um, and that's uh, the response of lots of conservative MPs who, who I spoke to and who then got in touch with me after that column saying this is my experience too they haven't necessarily had you know a mob that's gone viral on social media uh, but they've had people following them around. They've had malicious communications. Uh, they've had their constituency staff targeted. And even in quite sort of, um, I, I mean, I don't I never want to disagree with Stephen Bush, but but I, I, I don't actually think it's just Labour MPs in urban areas. I think it's I think it's across the board. Look, it's easier to get a busload of people with placards if you're in a town centre rather than if you're the MP for some shire constituency where there's a bus on Thursdays. So, you know, there is that just in terms of the convenience thing. I think one of the things for Labour, which is quite difficult, is they are a party that is more closely associated with traditions of protest, whether that be trade union picket lines or marches, you know, all the way from CND marches to marches on, well, even when Labour was in government on the Iraq war. Being a Labour person tends to mean that you've gone on a march. And so I think they find it harder to distinguish between legitimate protest and what is actually intimidating them personally. And so they have potentially, and I'm trying to phrase this carefully because I do not want to victim blame any of these Labour MPs, but I think they found it harder to navigate because they don't want to seem like they're anti-protest when actually what is happening to them is harassment and threat, which is not protest. Um, and there are very many ways in which you can make your point without turning up outside someone's house and frightening their children um, and traumatising their neighbours and, and that kind of thing. I mean, that's one of the great things about our society being so connected is that you can make your get your point across in, in lots of in lots of ways other than the sort of, you know, the rough music of country traditions, you know, a few centuries ago where people turned up with pots and pans to, to frighten people that they didn't like. And so I think that's why it's slightly harder for Labour MPs, because they feel they should listen to these guys a bit more. And perhaps these guys are more likely to turn up than to Tory MPs 
properties apart from with Tobias Elwood um, because they think that these that they think that Tory MPs are more likely to just ignore them. I, I mean, I think overall though we have a problem, and this is what a lot of the outrageous Fraser mentioned in the chamber on on Wednesday night was about, was that we have a problem with incentivising bad behaviour and suggesting that actually people will give in on their votes to threats. And I think one of the problems is that, again, not wanting to victim blame, totally not wanting to do this, I think it's been very difficult for MPs to distinguish between greater access to their constituents via social media and a level of abuse and intimidation and threat that has led them to self-censor over the past few years and now to change their votes. Uh, And that's where we've had a kind of tipping point this week. It's gone from people who've not wanted to get involved in certain debates, not just on Palestine, you know, on trans issues, on all sorts of issues where there is a very vehement uh, online discussion to people actually changing how they vote. And uh, I think that is that is really significant and really troubling. One of the other perhaps more historic developments we've seen this week is a speak is letter by the clerk of the house, Tom Goldsmith, who for the first time ever did the equivalent of one of those ministerial direction letters that permanent secretaries now do when they get told to do something by the, the cabinet member that they think goes against department protocol. The, the Goldsmith letter says, yes, um, Speaker, you've got the complete authority to do this. I recognise you're doing this for the best of intentions and because you're concerned about safety. However, if this is very unprecedented to uh, allow votes in the way that you've done it because of X, Y, and Z. Now, I think this matters because um, under the Burko era, we had lots of conventions being broken. The Speaker's got incredible authority. It's not really um, constrained in any way. And at the time, it looked as if Burko had simply gone rogue and that the institution of the House of Commons was at the mercy of a speaker who might simply change his mood and decide to start tearing up the rules and letting the opposition um, set government policy, as Burko effectively did during the Brexit debate. This new president's been set now. If a speaker does move a significant distance from the established protocol, then the clerks, who basically are the guardians of the laws and regulations of the standing orders of the House of Commons, can put it on record that the speaker has done so. And it wasn't a caustic letter, it was a very supportive letter, but the fact that the letter was written at all, I think, will improve the health of the institution of the House of Commons, because it's a reminder to everybody that these these conventions are there for a reason. I think Lindsay Hoyle now will, will deeply regret having broken these conventions. I wouldn't say that he rejected Goldsmith's advice, because the clerks aren't there really to tell the Speaker to do one thing or another. They're just simply there to tell him what the rules are and to advise if he moves significantly from them. Um, so I think the, the I, I'm a passionate believer in the fact that our strange medieval old par, um, parliament is probably the most the best functioning democracy in the world. I think the the way that we've got our MPs with their constituency system, the one that they're very fearful of a new political party that might loosen their majority. We saw this during Brexit. Brexit was. Um, a, basically foisted upon not just the government but the opposition uh, because public opinion had changed and it was the uh, the nervous system of the House of Commons that that worked. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in not fixing something that's not broken and in keeping these these rules and the standing orders the way they are. In this case, to protect the right of minority parties to debate and to test public opinion for their um, support in a straightforward vote in the House. 
I was worried when Burka was at large that that might be broken. You might have some some terrible constitution which might tie you in in other ways. But I think the Goldsmith Compromise, if you want to call it that, whereby the Speaker can deviate from the norm and he gets a letter, which isn't exactly a rebuke, but nonetheless it's something. I think that's a very British compromise, and one which I think will um, safeguard the health of institutions for some time. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs> <laughs>